1: With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell.
2: Uh, uh, Welcome to Herd Tell ah this is one of our favorites we haven't talked to her for a while although i did get to see her in real life a while back grace see her Andrew. pause because she's waiting to see if i get it right but dalek hey you did hey, it hey i did you it did grace but dalek she sings she dances she performs she runs the distant project i'm gonna talk about that in just a second all around wonder kund of young voices how are you my friend
1: oh you know i am hanging in we talked about it a little bit but Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I'm from, um, is dealing with that bomb cyclone that we were talking about. And so we're we're sort of on the tail end of that. And the temperature is slowly rising from negative 11 degrees yesterday to negative seven degrees tomorrow. And we're hoping that at a certain point, you know, we hit a bearable temperature to go outside again. So that's, I've, I've essentially been inside for the past three days, but otherwise I'm doing great. How are you?
2: Yeah, it's it's really interesting how weather works because I went up to Chicago a couple of weeks ago and they're like, oh, this is like the best week of the whole winter. It was like, you know, <laughs> low to mid 40s, not, you know, but not Chicago standards, not bad at all. Then mm-hmm. I go to Myrtle Beach earlier this past week and it's colder there than it was in Chicago. But then the weather changes. I was in Denver the end of October. It was 75 every day and now they're negative 20 today. Weather's weird. It's crazy in the wintertime. Uh, You're a New Yorker, though, now transplanted, so you're used to wild weather changes and bad weather. Um, Here's what you've been doing, though. I want to start with something good because you're now the manager of the Dissident Project. And we've had a a couple of them on. We just had Daniel on about two weeks ago. I think this is one of the most important things we as Young Voices has done in a while, although, you know, it, it kind of fell into our laps. You've done this for a while now. How has it affected you and changed you just working with these people and not just the going into the schools and the organizations and that stuff. But we talked about it when you first did it. And the last time we had you on the show is like, this is putting the human face on something that is just news stories to everybody else or something in a book to everybody else. You do it every day. You talk to these folks every day, though. How has it affected you on that human level?
1: Yeah. Oof. Well, first of all, let me give you a little bit of context for the listeners who haven't heard about Dissident Project before. I know a lot of your listeners have, but I'm just going to give a little bit of backstory. So we are under the Young Voices umbrella. And we send dissident speakers from uh, authoritarian and socialist countries around the world into American high schools to talk about the dangers of socialism and of authoritarianism and this is really the fellow Daniel DiMartino who of course you had on a couple weeks ago who is now uh, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and is a PhD candidate at Columbia um, and is really focused on uh, promoting the principles of a free market society and talking about how that freedom benefits not only uh, entrepreneurs but everybody else. Um, and you know, I think the difference between Distant Project and other organizations is that these personal stories are so incredibly emotionally affecting. As you were pointing, as you were pointing out, Andrew. I remember the. First time that I heard personally a lot of these dissident stories. And we were sitting in a conference room at the Fund for American Studies in DC at our first annual speaker training. And I had come onto the project, I don't know, like three weeks before or something. Um, so I hadn't been on the project long at all. And the recruits that we had were friends of Daniel. And you know, we're 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 people who were connected to the organization through, you know, ways that I wasn't really familiar with. And um the first time that I got to hear their stories uh was when they were really like working at the kinks in their in their different speeches. And I remember sitting and hearing about Daniel. Um and his mom, who is an incredible baker, having to smuggle chocolate for bonbons that she wanted to sell in Venezuela, um, or uh, Grace Joe's relatives uh, dying of hunger. Um, you know, Grace holding a, uh, her mom's dying baby, trying her best to keep it alive in in dire conditions in North Korea. Um, I heard about. Francis's experience as uh, a young protester in the umbrella movements in 2014. And, you know, I thought I thought about my own sort of high school experience, which is when a lot of these speakers went through these incredible trials in their lives. And I I thought to myself, you know, I had a I had a Volvo. Uh, I drove to school about three blocks away from my house. Um, I was gifted with an incredible education. My dad and my mom said, you know, we see that you are, that you're gifted and you're smart and pick out a school and do what you want with your life. And we will help you get there, right? Like we will support you in getting there. And I have known and felt the responsibility of being so blessed in my life and of being um supported unconditionally by those that I that I love and of living in a country where I am able to pursue the things that I love um without any real barriers in my way and in that moment you know all of that all of that uh all of that really responsibility and all of that like human sort of crashes down <laughs> you know, for lack of a better for lack of a better way to put it like really crashes down on your shoulders and you're like these people are incredible um and the united states of america is incredible and what we have as americans is incredible um and we have to do everything in our power to make sure that we don't lose it
2: yeah grace Dalek joining us you know, just to take you as the example, like, you know, you're basically a Hallmark movie, right? you Midwest girl, went to Michigan, became an actor, moved to New York, made it big, did all this stuff, been been in, you know, shows and movies and all this stuff. You know, we just, you know, that's a Hallmark movie. Yeah. Um, I think about my life, you know, two-parent household. We weren't rich, but we were never missing anything. My parents are school teachers. My dad was very frugal with his money, so he had it for things we wanted to do. Got to travel a lot gotta do the military. I've been around the world. Now I get to do this. Yeah. Um, we're so blessed. But then when you talk to, I remember when I had you and Francis on and she's talking about like, well, I'm talking to kids that when I was their age, I was in the street getting tear gassed with an umbrella, which is just something we saw on the news. She was there. That was their life. I don't know of any other way because it's almost a cliche about, you know, well, Americans and ugly Americans when they go abroad and they're ignorant and all that. There, there's a little truth to that. And as I've traveled the world and as I've gotten my, I don't know a better way to do it than to just have people who have been there and now they're here yeah. try to explain it to them. Because I think we're media desensitized now. I don't even when you see something shocking, it still has a shorter shelf life than it probably should. It has like the Hong Kong stuff, like the Venezuelans. Fleeing the, I just had Daniel on 7 million people out of that country. It's just gobsmack, you know, 40% of the population left. Like it's just, it blows your mind. Yep. I don't know of a better way to do it than to have those personal stories. And obviously, they can't all sit down like they have with you and me privately and talk to us. But going into the schools, talk about that part of it is, and I've, I asked Frances this and she's like, yeah, it's just amazing to watch them. That reaction to that age group of, oh, this is somebody that was in my shoes and I could be in their shoes. Yep, That's really the formula for something like this, isn't it?
1: It really is. I mean, young people relate to young people, right? Like you could have a dissident from Cuba who's 80 years old come in and talk about his experience. But um, and that, and that can be valuable. That can be a really wonderful thing. But there's still sort of that. Barrier, that separation between, you know, that experience and the experience of an American high schooler today. And so to see, you know, young people connect with young people. Not only through you know personal one-on-one experience, but also through social media, right? Like a lot of our a lot of our dissidents are incredibly active on social media. And Francis, actually, we're talking when as as we talk about sort of you know Hong Kong and the protests there, um, is fighting actively against the forces of TikTok, you know, in our country, and is and is and is relating to these students on a level that may actually be incredibly shocking to them. You know, how the Chinese government is using um, TikTok to uh, influence hearts and minds in the United States in a way that's more insidious than than we could ever really understand. And so, um, yeah, it's just it's more relatable. It's more relatable.
2: Grace Babalic, joining us. You're a you're a performer. You're an actress. Uh, you sing. You perform. Politics is performative now. It always has yeah. been, but especially now in the mass media and the internet edge, it really is. Just put your performer hat on for a second, because I understand that you have to present whether you're you know a school teacher or just somebody talking or a preacher in a church or a po- politician at a podium. There's a performative aspect to stuff, especially when now everything needs to be online. How do you view that stuff, though? Because there's so much of what our politics and culture stuff is just performative now. Does your radar go up immediately? Like, like, oh, they're they're really performing here. And then do do you kind of see the craft to that when you look at it? Because you're trained to do that. You went to school for that. You have practiced it. Does your radar jump on that a little bit more than maybe our common mind? Like, oh, this person's really performing or oh, this person's so good. I'm not noticing the performance, which is the mark of a real performer. Right. Just talk about that for a second, because you see that through that, per- that you know, that's your profession in a lot of ways. How's that hit you when you look at things like politics and culture and how it's covered?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a, there's an extent to which it's really important that politicians be trained in that way. Um, it's really important for effective delivery that politicians be trained in that way, um, that pastors be trained in that way, that people who are trying to sort of influence the public sphere be trained in certain aspects of performance um however i think that when uh performance becomes the end and not the means to the end um it gets a it gets a little it gets a little bit convoluted right like we see aoc sort of building a media platform and like what is she doing in dc we're not exactly sure um so it it i don't know it's it sits it's it's it sits it's, it's, it's sort of the wrong way with me um, and i think that like i said as as a politician can a politician can be incredibly effective through performance but there's nothing more impactful than a one on one conversation with people there's nothing more impactful than somebody who who has been through um and when we when we go back to the dissident project like there's nothing more impactful than somebody who has been through something firsthand and is telling you earnestly about that experience who is relating to you um on a level that you can understand um and so yeah i think i think my radar really really goes up when I see certain levels of performance in politics uh, nowadays.
2: Yeah. Grace Pedalec, which goes to the yeah. old acting thing of like the best performances are when you put something of yourself in it. Same with a singer, same with anything else. Yeah. How how do we gauge that better? I'm just talking about the normal person. Like when we're looking at it, it's like, how do we gauge that? Cause there's so much fake out there. Now there's two ways to do that. One is the real really burns through in a hurry. When something real shows sure. up, it makes everything look bad. But it's hard to discern that. How how does somebody who's not trained to look at performance, though? How do we look for the real in the media? Just when we're watching a politician give a speech, or we, you know, even something big like the the, the Zelensky speech, where yeah. you have all the government there. That's performative. He's really good at that. He's winning a propaganda war. That's not a criticism. That's what he should be doing for his yeah. country. Right? But you have all our politicians now changing because they're being seen in that group, or like a State of the Union, same thing. What's something we can look for for trying to discern the real out of the noise and the mess of the media of the performance part of it, Mrs. Performer?
1: Oh, man. Well, that's a great question. It takes me back to um, my, you know, collegiate days at the University of Michigan, um, majoring in in musical theater, thinking about, uh, you know, discerning when you're dissecting a song or you're uh, analyzing a script for the first time reading the material and discerning what you're in is right so how is it that i personally relate to this material and what sort of emotional well if we're if we're really getting into sort of the actor terminology now what sort of emotional well can i be pulling from here Uh, what experiences have i have i had that um that enabled me to relate to this character that i that i am i am trying to uh trying to emulate trying to embody um and what's my in um and then secondarily like what what is my objective um as this character as i'm stepping into these shoes what is this character trying to accomplish um i think that to a certain extent politicians are all playing characters right they're all playing characters who have objection who have objectives uh that they're trying to reach um i think when we can contextualize people and understand where it is they're coming from. Understand their own personal experiences, um, and see what their quote unquote emotional in is to the topic at hand. What uh, what their quote unquote emotional in is to the speech that they're currently giving, to the policy that they're pushing. Like, you know, it, we can understand where does their motivations are coming from. Now whether or not somebody is emotional about something or is emotionally connected to something does not make it good policy. I think that we can, you know, obviously separate empathy and, uh, you know, emotionality from uh, a policy that is beneficial to people specifically in the United States. Um, and that's something that you know, we're not necessarily adept at doing anymore. I think a lot of people govern out of, the desire to be quote unquote empathetic, which actually in a lot of circumstances leads to uh, the least empathetic policy for the most people. Um, And we can look at that, you know, in issues of immigration specifically right now.
2: Grace like joining us. See, this this is where we get back to the dissident project stuff is yeah. because they talk about how tyranny started in their country, especially somewhere like Venezuela, which that's been within my adult lifetime. So I've seen that happen in real time. China's been a little bit of a longer run, although the Xi Jinping area of the last you know decade and a half or so, you can kind of parse that down a little bit. Every single one of the dissidents starts talking about The policy side went sideways when the policy started overriding the humanity and it started overriding the people and what's best for folks. It it always starts with that humanity part that you just talked about, humanizing folks and policy that gets away from the humanity. There's no way to disentangle that when you lose your humanity, that's the slippery slope that always winds up in the really ugly place of, you know, war crimes and human terror and things like we see with the way or, or things like we see in Venezuela or things like we see not just the Southern border, which is a smaller part of a wider immigration crisis, but you see what, you know, refugees and displaced peoples have to go through, whether it's here in Europe or what we're seeing out of Ukraine, trying to flee a war zone or the Middle East or whatever. That's the, that's the thing you've always got to get to because yeah. if you separate policy from humans, that's when you wind up with, you know, what happened in China, where we'll never know how many millions of people died? What happened in, you know, the Holocaust, and and how many millions died? The Holocaust, yeah. how many millions died? But that's but, the sort of it.
1: But I also think it's important, you know, uh, when you're looking at what people are pushing under the guise of empathy, to be super discerning about whether or not the policy they're trying to push through is empathetic or not. I think we saw that a lot in COVID, um, you know, policy that was pushed under the name of, you know, health and empathy toward this, you know, the most amount of people, which was actually really detrimental for, uh, you know, the working class for young people, uh, for children. Um, I think we're seeing that, you know, with Democrats at the Southern border, um, I think that we see that you know even in in sort of wokeness today the idea that like Stanford is banning or is ban excuse me Stanford is banning uh, certain words from their lexicon or is recommending that you not use certain words diminishing the English language uh, you know under the guise of empathy and so I think the word even just the word empathy can be incredibly convoluted and can be can be used to pass policy which is incredibly insidious and so we have to be really discerning as as conservative people and as people who you know try to be genuinely empathetic you know what is what is empathy and what does it really mean and like is policy that is born out of a desire to be empathetic actually empathetic i think it's a i think it's a really interesting conversation
2: Yeah. And you know what I do when I try to discern that? Because look, that's how that's what we started this whole program when I was trying to discern things, try to figure out what's actually happened, not just chasing, not just react to things. You know where I try to discern it when it comes to like something like that. Anytime somebody starts pushing a one size fits all, you just kind of mentioned it with the COVID thing. It's like, oh, well, this is for the greatest amount of people. So that's why we need to do it. That's the warning flag on that for me usually is like, oh, well, this is going to make it better for everybody. Well, nothing in the history of ever has ever made everything better for everybody. That's not possible.
1: And that's why federalism is such an amazing system, right? Um, and uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. I completely agree.
2: You know, the the one size fits all thing is a red as much a red flag as all uh, oh, the people don't matter. The government matters more. That's a red flag too. We got to be able to walk and chew gum with this stuff because <laughs> there is a spectrum in the middle of good, bad, indifferent, and neutral, and whatever. But both of those are bad. And the problem is, is they can run parallel beside each other and you don't know which side you're on sometimes. So Mm -hmm. discernment's a big thing. That's why I bring up the performative thing, even as a performing artist. There's skill sets to that that we need to understand as people. Grace Badalik, I love talking about stuff like this. Okay. Got to talk a little politics with you, though. You were writing in the New York Daily News. That's a good get, by the way. Thank you. Um, A couple of weeks ago, back at the beginning of December you wrote about this. Now you're the nicest person in the world. We just talked about empathy. You just, you wouldn't hurt a mouse. Um, but boy, you got some flack for this one. And all you wrote about was that it was too early to be endorsing Donald Trump.
1: Yeah.
2: I'll let you explain the piece in full, but boy, howdy, did that upset some folks?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that's okay. You know, I, the piece was essentially, um, a dissection of, uh a sort of an overview dissection of conservatism uh of of the conservative parties and uh or of the conservative party and of the leadership that we are elevating uh specifically as young conservatives and you know like you said earlier i'm a new yorker i live in new york city i one of my life is to really you know work for the flourishing of the city that i feel like god has called me to um and i look at the representatives that we have elevated in specifically in young conservatism, and I wonder, you know, aloud <laughs> if that th- that representation is 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 warranted, uh, or is you know is is representation that we all as young conservatives can get behind. I really don't think that it is, specifically with the New York Young Republican Club. And so, my piece was sort of equating an endorsement for Trump to Uh, an endorsement for uh, the leadership of the New York Young Republican Club, which I think is, uh, I think, I think is, is, it is high time that we reevaluate who we're elevating.
2: Yeah. And what was funny about the backlash of this is like, all you're saying is this isn't a logical political decision as far as trying to advance the ball. It's all based on personality or business model or whatever the case may be. And then the backlash was all is you're disloyal. And then mm-hmm. they, took a, they took a run at some of our friends like Daniel. They're going <laughs> to deport Daniel. And they're going to deport Gary and Frankel, our buddy, who, mm-hmm. by the way, is a Chicano Texan. They they were Americans long before we were, by the way, because mm-hmm. they've been here since, you know, Texas became a state. Um, then they took a run at, you know, Stephen Ken, who hadn't even been there for two years. Then they took a run at me. It, like, you're proving her point when you go to the personal attacks and you're disloyal and you're not an American and all that. All you're doing is exactly proving the point that you started out with of this is not good policy. It's not good politics. It's going to turn people off and you're just making this exclusive in club that people aren't going to want anything to do with.
1: Yeah. And all I'm going to say about that is like cancel culture is an incredible thing. Right. Uh, I think that uh, I think that when people purport to be, quote unquote, anti woke and then wield woke tools. Uh, you have to be super, super cautious with that group of people.
2: Yeah. And I don't even care what terminology you want. It's just the same thing over and over again. It's powers and in groups and in clubs and excluding the people you don't like. And you can get through their little, you know, buzzwords like mono ethnicity. We all know what that (laughs) really means. We're not, you know, we're adults, this kind of crap. And then you want to start deporting people. It's pretty clear what you want. And that's, That's not the America that is successful, growing, and brings the most freedom to the most people possible, which is what I'm for. So,
1: Yeah, and I think when you talk about, quote-unquote, being an adult, I don't think adults um, necessarily have their beef out on Twitter. Uh, I think, you know, when a person has 18 Twitter followers, I haven't read the tweets, to be completely honest with you, um, but I've heard a lot about them. Um, And I don't think it's it's the right way to go uh, about open conversation if that's what you really purport to be about.
2: Yeah, I, you know, Twitter, I I said this because of the Musk stuff. Look, Twitter's still a sandbox. It's an important sandbox. There's a lot of important people in the sandbox. You can get some stuff done in the sandbox. It's still a sandbox. And it's a very small. I think Twitter's Internet penetration is like eight percent. And that sounds like a lot. And it is. But Facebook's is like 44. Yeah. And it's
1: still and it's still an echo chamber. Yeah like it's still uh people picking and choosing what voices they want to you know have bouncing off the the walls of their proverbial proverbial echo chambers um and i think that there's not a better example of that than what has what has gone down with nyyrc um over twitter you know i Again, I have eighteen followers. Or you know, however many followers I have, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a part of the conversation. And so it's a. It's a bunch of people talking to each other, um, about issues that they, you know, agree on. Uh, and so it's just. It's been an interesting thing to watch unfold. To watch unfold.
2: Yeah. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on The Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics From the vanilla, to the ADHD, to the international accountability, to orangutans. Yes, I know, that's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Grace Bidet, like Let's talk, let's talk about New York City for just a second, though, because you do live there. You do a lot of charity work there. It's not just your career path and and you live you've really tried to make a home there. Does, is the current situation in New York? Is it getting a bad rap? You actually live there. You walk around there. You hang out there. You've got, you know, your charity kids that you work with that I know that is so important to you we do this with our friends in Portland. We've done that. I just did it when I went to Chicago. Everybody's got their stereotype in New York. Just give people what it's like for you actually living there. Just kind of turn the noise down a little bit. Cause we know, yeah, there's crime areas. Yeah. It's mismanaged and corrupt, but still a lot of good people living there and good stuff going on. Just give, give folks a little bit of a pitch on New York city for folks like me that like to visit it, but don't really want to hang out there too awful long.
1: Yeah. And that's fine. You know, and uh, it's a, it's a really good question because I think that there's, you know there are obviously the cnn's and the fox Newses of the world that you know are spreading these sort of scare stories about new york city and there's a grain of truth in that and that's why i that's why it, it is effective those those stories are effective in scaring people away from the city um you know obviously i'm from the midwest and my grandparents every time we meet you know at the tex-mex place down the street are like hey so when are you moving home because the only thing that they've experienced you know about the city or oh, the only thing the only stories that they've heard from the city are stories of you know uh, uh from from fox news and from cnn from the major media corporations and that's you know i think unfortunate um but my cousins from from georgia actually just came to the city and i i was fortunate enough to be able to see them on uh sunday morning which was the day that actually i had the day the day before i had come from home from home from dc which is where i saw you. Um, But they were like, oh, you know, we totally get it now. Like we 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 feel safer walking down the street in New York City at 11 p.m. than we do in Macon, Georgia, or than you know than we do in our hometowns. And I can I can say that for sure about Omaha as well. You know, I feel safer walking down the street in Midtown, New York, at 11:30 p.m. than I do in Omaha, Nebraska. Because in Omaha, there's really no one, and in New York, there's always somebody there, right? Like there's always a group of people bad and good uh in new york who who are who are surrounding you at essentially all time all times um and i think something that doesn't get enough credit in new york is really the incredible boom that we've seen uh post-covid obviously rents have been you know skyrocketing the past few years because people have been you know really really wanting to be there and really wanting to to pour themselves into this into the city we see that not only on like a professional level but also on a philanthropic level right like um i just wrote a piece on the bowery mission for uh Highline nine which is a luxury gallery downtown and um you know they saw Right after COVID, they saw their numble, numbers double. Double, you know, uh, and the staff of of Bowery Mission had to be super uh, flexible and incredibly creative about the way that they were serving people. But in New York, that's just what people do. They stayed open. They stayed open. They opened their doors and they made sure that these people um, had a place to go and had warm food and had a change of clothes and had a shower. Um, and that's really what we're experiencing in New York right now is people's sort of ingenuity as uh, as the city opens back up. Um, so I have I have I have a lot of good things to say about the city. You do have to stand you know in front of a pole in the system so that you're sure you're not going to be pushed into the, the draft but that's you know that's a minor price to pay. In the scheme of
2: things is, is what I think I had, uh, I was in Chicago and our doorman, I was standing beside the doorman of the hotel is that, and there was a group of people debating. They were, they were businessmen that traveled, obviously they were debating between New York and Chicago. And of course they're standing in Chicago. So they're debating, which is better New York or Chicago. And it was funny. The, the doorman looked over at me and he goes, I hear this all the time. And he goes, I was like, well, just give me, I was like, well, I'm not from here. Give me your take on it. He goes, I'm all about Chicago way more corrupt, but still better ran. And I'm just like, this is the greatest line I've ever heard. So there, there's the Chicago doorman who's been a doorman in Chicago for 40 years. That's true.
1: Although very (laughs) exciting politically, you know, Lee Zeldin, you know, whether or not he won, uh, he pulled up four down ballot Republicans, you know, to, to, to victory in the midterms. And, and I think we've seen sort of a resurgence of conservatism in the city, unlike, you know, anything we we've, we've seen since maybe the 1980s, 1990s. See, there's uh,
2: another thing that you need a local to explain is like New York, kind of like L.A. and, you know, you had it's it's heavy blue in the aggregate. Overall, there's some deeply conservative. Yeah. There's parts of Staten Island. There's parts of Queens, you know, it's kind of like L.A. and, you know, you get out to Orange County and places like that. It's a lot more they, it's not as monolithic, although on the map it is. And it'll probably always be eternally blue. But it's not like that on the local level either.
1: Yeah. No, it's not. You go to Staten Island and it's like, a you know, a bunch of blue collar firefighters like, you know, voting for Nicole Malley attack over 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 uh, Max Rose every time. Um, and, you know, I think that we're sort of seeing or like I said, we're seeing a resurgence in conservatism, not only in those sort of, you know, previously red pockets, but also in 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 Manhattan proper. Um, the you know, uh, you know, regardless of, of whether or not Kathy Hochul thinks so, crime is a very real issue to New Yorkers. And I think that um, I think that anybody with eyes who lives in New York City can see uh, can see that, you know, we've needed a change of leadership. Um, and so that's why we saw sort of the 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 success that we saw in the midterms, even if that wasn't an outright win.
2: You gotta do something about that George Santos mess, though. That's not good. Uh, yeah. Grace Bedalek, um,
1: I love it, Andrew. You pronounce it.
2: You I get the last one wrong. I just you pronounce get it. it
1: differently every time. I,
2: uh, God. It's so I, good.
3: It's so good.
2: Grace is joining us. Yeah, <laughs> no, we we love Grace Bedalek so very much, and it's I practiced her name. I swear to God, I did. Grace, we love having you. Always enjoy the talk, my friend. Let folks know where they can keep up with you since you avoid Twitter nowadays for good reason. Yeah. Uh, but you got a lot going on. you got a lot of writing going on. Let folks know where they can keep up with you uh, until we get you back again. It won't be as long next time, hopefully. Because yes. I'm going to practice between now and then.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I am on Instagram at Grace underscore Daily, D-A-L-E-Y. I also have a website where I post all of my writing, which is Grace Daily Bedalic, B-Y-D-A-L-E-K at gmail or not at gmail.com at uh dot com. Yes, <laughs> it's just .com. And um in addition to that, you can read my theatrical reviews in the New York Sun, uh my freelance journalism in in various outlets uh around around the country, um, and my artist spotlights for Highline 9. Um and you can always reach me through the Dissident Project uh website as well, which is where I handle bookings and 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 you know lead the project. So um i am you know open and available to talk
2: <laughs> yeah okay fair is fair i butchered your name and i'm not going to edit it out so you got to give me a time you flubbed a line or just could not get something right as a performer
1: oh my gosh okay great question um i uh, brent wagner uh, you this is a story now you've launched me into a story so brent Go. wagner is one of the most revered uh musical theater edu- He started the Michigan program. He ran it for 30 years and he created like an empire at that program. Um, And I was really, really blessed to study underneath him. Um, I was one of the last classes in one of the last classes that was chosen by him. And he had uh, a a Wagner like lecture because he used to teach musical theater history classes. He had a lecture um, once a year that he gave and he chose different people to um, to perform beautiful songs from the musical theater repertoire that he thought he were important enough to teach on. And he approached me my senior year and asked me to sing Not Getting Married Today, which is a Stephen Sondheim song, which is often called the most difficult song in musical theater repertoire. It is essentially like a patter song. It's a rap basically um, for you know people who don't know what a patter song is. But the first verse is like, Pardon me, is anybody here? Because if everybody's here, I want to thank you all for coming to the wedding. I appreciate you going even more. like, just like three verses, four verses of unrelenting words. And I remember that I was, I was like, I was through three fourths of the song. We were coming up on the last verse, and I just like entirely, entirely blanked in front of, you know, probably 150, 200 people, entirely blanked. Um, and looked at Tyler, the accompanist, you know, who was sort of vamping. And I was like, Tyler, um, let's try that again. And we went from the last verse and we picked it up and we went through the end. But it is one of the like the greatest regrets in my entire life that I was not able to complete that song in the Wagner lecture setting because I was so honored to be asked. And I flubbed it up. But what are you going to do?
2: <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm just trying to think of. You know, unrelenting words would be a great name for maybe your biopic one of these days. You might want to tag that one somewhere. Unrelenting words. That There we go. We got our Hallmark movie, Girl from the Midwest Makes it in the City. Unrelenting words. The grace yeah. the, the story. Yep. <laughs> You know, we love you to death. You're the best. Uh, Grace, thank you so much for the time. Hope you have a great new year. We will definitely be seeing you. And hopefully we got a couple of the dissonance we haven't had on yet. We need to get that worked out, get them back on, keep them in the rotation. Uh, We'll have them on and you and you have a great 2023 and can't wait to see you there.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. This has been wonderful.
2: Thank you, ma'am. Back to her tell. Okay, for something completely different, let's talk about whether or not grapefruits will kill you. No, seriously, over at the Atlantic, Catherine Wu writing. Roughly a century ago, a new fad diet began to sweep the United States. Hollywood starlets, such as the Barrymore, supposedly swore by it, the citrus industry hopped on board. A figure a conscious girl had to do was to eat a lot of grapefruit for a week or two or three or however long. It was called the grapefruit diet. Like pretty much all other fad diets, it's mostly bunk. All fad diets are bunk. by the way. Don't do them. You just end up in a yo-yoing doom loop that makes you feel worse after you're done, and it usually costs you a bunch of money you didn't have anyway. The citrus industry hopped all aboard on this, but what actually happened was the citrus was being recommended as part of a portion-controlled, low-calorie, low-carbohydrate diet, not because it had exceptional flat busting powers, and yet the diet has survived through the decades, spawning a revival in the 70s and the 80s, and a dangerous Juice exclusive spinoff called the Grapefruit Fast. And even got a shout-out from a Weird Owl parody. And the hype still plagues nutritionists today. But for every group for, but for every grapefruit evangelist, there is a critic warning of its dangers, and usually somebody with a background in pharmacology. The fruit, for all its tastiness and dietic appeal, has another more sinister trait. Turns out it raises the level of dozens of FDA-approved medications in the body, and for a select few drugs. The amplification can be potent enough to trigger a life-threatening overdose. For most people, chowing down on a grapefruit is completely safe. It would take a perfect storm of factors, say vulnerability of people that are taking an especially grapefruit-sensitive drug or medication within a certain window and drinking in excessive amounts of the particular grapefruit juice. For disaster to completely unfurl, says Emily Heal, an infectious disease pharmacist at the University of Maryland, but that leaves grapefruit in a bit of a weird position. No one can agree on exactly how much the world should worry about its bittersweet treat whose chemical properties scientists still don't fully understand. Grapefruits medication concentrating powers were discovered only because of a culinary accident. Some three decades ago, the clinical pharmacologist Dave Bailey, who just died earlier this year, was running a trial testing the effects of alcohol consumption on blood pressure medication called felodipine. Folks, there's going to be some pharmacology in here that I just can't pronounce. So let's just go through it together, shall we? It's best we can. Hoping to mask the distinctive taste of booze to his volunteers, Bailey mixed it with grapefruit juice. I was shocked to discover the blood levels of, philodip- of this drug, I'm not, let's just give up on it, were suddenly skyrocketing in everyone and even those in the control group who were drinking the virgin grapefruit juice. After running the experiments himself, Bailey confirmed that the juice was the blame. Some chemical in grapefruit was messing with the body's natural ability to break down the phelodipin, I don't know in the hours after it was taken, causing the drug to accumulate in the blood. It's the rough physiological equivalent of jamming a garbage disposal. Waste that normally gets flushed just builds and builds and builds. In this case, the garbage disposal is an enzyme called Critochrome P4503A4. Now, while that sounds like an address in Britain and or some kind of username of a bot, it has a shorter version, (laughs) CYP3A4, I'm glad I'm not a chemist, folks. Capable of breaking down a whole slate of potentially harmful chemicals found in food and meds, and the jamming culprit is the compound found in the pulp and the peel of the grapefruit and other related related citruses, including pomelos and Seville oranges. Doesn't take much. Even half a grapefruit can be enough to trigger a noticeable interaction, says George Dresser, a pharmacologist in Ontario possible consequences of the molecular clog can sometimes get intense. The full list of potential interactions is long. More than 50% of drugs on the market are metabolized by the CYP3A4. Sounds like a droid on Star Wars, doesn't it? Which inhabits both the liver and the gut, says Mary Payne, a pharmacologist at Washington State University. That said, grapefruit can greatly affect only intestinal CYP3A4, and will cause only a small fraction of those medications to reach notably higher concentrations in the blood. And only a small fraction of those medications will, when amassed, threaten to t- true toxicity. Our bodies are always making more CYP3A4. Stop eating grapefruit and within a day or two, the levels of protein should more or less reset themselves. But the professionals disagree on how to characterize grapefruit's risk. To Shirley Shinada, a pharmacist at UC San Diego, quote, it's definitely a big deal end quote, especially for organ transplant patients and others with other pre-existing conditions or those on heavy medication regimes that are susceptible. Her advice is for them to indulge in grapefruit exactly never. And ideally, the tacrolimus takers should skip related citrus too. Sonata even advises people to check the labels of mixed fruit juices just in case the maker sneaked in grapefruit. But Paul Watkins, a pharmacologist at UNC Chapel Hill, is much less worried. His bigger concern, he said, is the fruit reputation as a nemesis of oral medications has been way overblown. He said the study of grapefruit drug interactions but abandoned it years ago after, quote, I came to the conclusion it wasn't very important. But, he says, I think the actual incidence of patients who have gotten into any kind of trouble had serious adverse reactions due to taking drugs with grapefruit juice is very, very small. Even the FDA seems unsure how to feel about the grapefruit. The agency has stamped the documentation of several grapefruit-sensitive medications with official warnings, but fact sheets for other drugs merely mention that they can interact with grapefruit. It says to consult a healthcare professional, or more importantly, just counsel people to avoid drinking the juice in large amounts. No matter what, Dan Nosowitz has reported for Atlas Obscura, a great publication, by the way. Make sure you read. <coughs> Make sure you're reading Atlas Obscura. I do frequently. Uh, several interaction drugs have been. Bearing war- warnings in Canada, among them Viagra, oxycodone, and HIV antiviral Edurant, and a blood pressure medication, verapamil, don't mention any issues with the grapefruit, though, when they appear in the United States. Very little solid data can precisely quantify grapefruit's peril. Over the years, researchers have documented a number of isolated cases of citrus drug interactions that prompted urgent medical care, but for now, conversation has mostly been stalled while grapefruit has served up even more mysteries. In the years since Bailey's discovery, researchers have found that the fruit might lower the concentrations of certain drugs, such as allergy med, feta I'm not pronouncing this one, sorry. The concentration of certain drugs, such as an allergy med, perhaps by keeping the lining of the intestines from absorbing certain compounds. New drugs are particularly murky area, especially since grapefruit interactions aren't a typical first priority when a new medication hits the market. The popular COVID antiviral pill Paxaloid, for instance, contains the CYP3A4 susceptible ingredient Rido- ritonavir. Y'all just keep laughing at me. I'm still not going to pronounce any of this right, I'm afraid. A Pfizer representative told me the company is not concerned about toxicity, but he will wonders whether grapefruit could mildly agitate some of Paxaloid's irksome side effects like diarrhea or maybe the sour metallic taste that remains people of, well, grapefruit. Catherine Wu (laughs) writing in the Atlantic uh, ends it this way, saying uh, even people on certain medications may be able to enjoy it if they consult an expert first. Heal, who thinks the grapefruit is disgusting, even gave her dad the green light to enjoy a dinnertime cocktail and contained a small splash of juice. Maybe the smidge of fruit attracted his meds that day and affected them. But, quote, it isn't going to be the end of the world. Heal told me to say that, after all, would have been an exaggeration. Then the Atlantic will link to it. Don't worry about me, though, on my GI's issues. I'm already banned from all citrus, so I'm not going to be eating it, drinking it, or consuming it either which way. Just giving you something on a bit of a lighter note to consider here on Herd Tell, which will continue right after this. Welcome back to hotel. Let's end on a bit of a good note. Let's go local for me, back to my home area, the town right next to my hometown, if you can call it a town. But uh, there's a piece in the West Virginia Press about the West Virginia Gold Star Mothers dedicating a living memorial. It's an apple orchard, apple trees. Now we got apple trees up yonder across the house that I grew up in. Uh, Fewer of them now. Storms keep kind of whittling them away. This is a really cool idea. But what's interesting about this piece was. They had a contest about it, and an eighth grader wrote this. Um, Maddie Mae Buckner for the West Virginia Press Association. We'll link to it. You can read her whole piece. The part that I got a little bit cracked up about, and you got to know the area a little bit, was this line right here. And I'm quoting here because this is the most Nicholas County thing, West Virginia, ever. The Living Memorial Apple Tree Orchard is located on Route 19 in Mount Nebo, directly across from the tractor bar. Yes, the Tractor Bar is a tractor bar because it was Mountain Ebo farm equipment, you know, selling actual tractors for the better part of 100 years until just now. A couple of years ago, they turned it into a full blown bar and grill. It's actually been really successful. Don't laugh. They've got write ups in GQ and major newspapers and a couple other things. So the Tractor Bar, they've changed from plowing fields to people getting plowed. What do you do? That'll do it for Herd Tell. Uh hope you're well wherever you and yours are listening. Make sure you're subscribing to all the podcasting platforms and the YouTube. And we can't wait to see you next time as we continue to turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information that matters, and discern the times we live in. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll see you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a Creative Content License from Monstercat.com.
3: Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church in Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on The Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics From the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.